Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Edward Duffy, the author of Philadelphia, A Railroad History. Edward Duffy, author of Philadelphia, A Railroad History. Is there something special about Philadelphia as a railroad town as opposed to other cities? Yes, it is. And it gets to the reason why I wrote the book. Um, back in um, 1998, uh, Conrail was acquired by Norfolk Southern and CSX. And at the time, the thought occurred to me that uh, Philadelphia was about to lose an institution which had been around here since uh, the 1840s. And um, an institution that had employed perhaps over 150 years, hundreds of thousands of people, and uh, had a really big impact on how the city had developed, both in terms of its uh, industrial development with a Baldwin locomotive and uh, also the city's actual physical form. Um, you're, everyone's familiar with Reading Terminal Market and 30th Street Station, Suburban Station, but not too many people might know the uh, role that the Pennsylvania Railroad played in you know, the design of the uh, Benjamin Franklin Parkway. Uh, that the, the parkway, which cuts across the city at a diagonal, really came up in discussions that were underway uh, with the Pennsylvania Railroad and B&O Railroad and the Reading Railroad having to do with uh, some grade crossing improvements up around uh, Spring Garden Street and the uh, Philadelphia Art Museum and uh, the Waterworks. So with that in mind, uh, I thought before I lost it, I would sit down and, and write this book, and, and that's what I've done. Have you been a railroad buff? Um, my background in this is not in railroads. Uh, I had just recently gotten out of the Army in 1973, and I was looking for a, a real job. And so uh, I got a job working for the city economist, which was in the Philadelphia Commerce Department. And a couple weeks after I got the job, uh, the Congress passed the Regional Rail Reorganization Act. Now, in 1973, the railroads in Philadelphia, with the exception of the B&O, or what we now call CSX, uh, the, the Pennsylvania Railroad and the Reading Railroad were in bankruptcy. And so uh, the federal government um, activated this regional rail reorganization process, and they wanted the city of Philadelphia to respond to various plans that were coming out. Uh, Mayor Rizzo received uh, the invitation to, to respond to these uh, plans. Uh, he delegated the city economist, and the city economist named me as the person to do the research. So um, I found myself uh, uh, learning all about this on the fly, and uh, uh, various city agencies, such as in those days, the, uh, the Philadelphia Port Corporation, put up funds to, for us to uh, hire a consultant who would explain the whole thing to us. And so um, through 1973 to 1976, I was very much the city's point person on the freight side of this. Uh, I did, really didn't get involved at all on the passenger side of it. And so then I went on to other things in real estate, but uh, uh, people have always come around, they've always remembered me as the railroad guy, so I have to, I get a phone call, would you please tell me how, how this came about? I, I was answering an email this morning from somebody wanting to know how the East Side Railroad of the B&O came into being. So, I mean, it follows me around. <laughs> so when you were going through the, the organization of Conrail and Amtrak, what kind of decisions did the city have to make? Well, um, the 
question, the, the sort of a, a dual uh, ideas that came up were, is there going to be one big railroad or are we going to take these various other railroads and divide them up? And if, in fact, we go with either of these two alternatives, are there lots of lines running all through Philadelphia? And at the state level, it was a very, very big issue with Governor Schapp. Uh, hundreds, perhaps thousands of miles of track which really didn't make any money for the railroads. And in those days, the industry was very tightly regulated by the Interstate Commerce Commission, who would tell the railroads, you must keep that line open, and even though they were losing money on it. So um, the, the city had to determine how to respond to any uh, uh, identifications of lines in Philadelphia as uh, to be abandoned. And in fact, the first slide that I have here, um, I show uh, Philadelphia City Planning Commission map of Philadelphia from 1971, which is kind of like the calm before the storm, because you'll see on that, on that map lines that no longer exist. Um, for example, there are two uh, parallel horizontal lines bracketing Center City, Philadelphia. Um, these were a uh, Pennsylvania Railroad line in the bed of Washington Avenue and a Reading Railroad line uh, roughly in the bed of Callahill Street, just, uh, just north of Callahill Street. Those lines were abandoned. Uh, and there were other lines in Philadelphia abandoned. And throughout the state of Pennsylvania, there were, uh, I'm sure people who are watching this program can relate to uh, you know, the, the, the loss of railroad lines in the coal country. And this was just freight that you were looking at? Had Amtrak already been spun off? Um, Amtrak uh, had come into existence in 1971. Uh, legislatively, they were then empowered to create a Northeast Corridor Improvement Plan, um, uh, tell the federal government how much money is needed to create high-speed rail in, in uh, the Northeast Corridor. And uh, that was in 1971. Now, the enabling legislation for the Regional Railway Organization Act, continued that process. And then when Conrail came into uh, uh, existence in 1976, um, then $2 billion were provided at that time to Amtrak to rebuild the Northeast Carter. And, and that, by the way, had a big impact on Philadelphia freight because uh, Amtrak uh, very much wanted to eliminate um, freight interference on passenger lines because if they're now trying to get their trains like the Metroliner, which came into existence around 1968, they're trying to get those trains up to 150 miles an hour. Uh, they, they don't want a, a switch engine with three boxcars, you know, crossing and crossing over the corridor. Uh, this leads me to a, a kind of a, a funny story. Uh, the city was planning the uh, airport high-speed line, which would run from 30th Street Station to the airport. Well, it just so happens that the 30th Street Station and the airport are on opposite sides of the Northeast Corridor. So when the planning for this began, like in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, um, Amtrak was not in existence. And the city engineers were talking to um, Pennsylvania Railroad, Penn Central engineers, and what they proposed to do was to do a series of interlocks which would take the airport high-speed train across at grade the Northeast Corridor. And so the, uh, when Amtrak came along and they looked at these plans, they said, no, 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 you can't do that. Uh, you're going to have to design a flyover bridge which would take the trains up, over, and, and down. And um, uh, Mayor Rizzo was just flabbergasted at this because he was counting on getting that line up and running in time for the bicentennial. So um, I recall uh, the city's transportation coordinator had gone down to Washington, and this is like 1974, and, he, and he, he got the message. And he comes back, and there's like 18 of us sitting around at that meeting table when he delivers the message. And he said, uh, the, I know we, we cannot do it the way we wanted to do. We have to build a bridge. But we're going to build that bridge, 
and we're going to have this line open in time for the 1976 bicentennial. And we're all like, <gasps> like this. And then he said, he said, and if anybody in this room doesn't believe we can get it done, you can just get up and leave. And everybody got up and left. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, so, I mean, this, this is how, you know, the, the railroad system was very much in flux at the time. And w w people were being dealt surprises right and left as this whole uh, process went, went, went forward. Did that line ever get built? The airport high-speed line? Absolutely. And it opened, like, around 1986, like 10 years uh, late for the bicentennial. And it's a, it's a great line. I mean, uh, uh, I can go from my home in Mount Airy uh, to Ireland, where my parents used to live, and uh, I'm not in an automobile at all, ever, because I get on the train in Philadelphia, in my neighborhood, I get off at 30th Street, get on the airport high-speed line, I'm at the airport, I fly to Dublin, and my family's waiting for me. So. Well, your book on uh, Philadelphia railroad history, when can you point to a moment when railroad history starts in Philadelphia? Yes, uh, that's a good, good question. Um, really, you can take it all the way back to the time of George Washington, because Washington, who was uh, an engineer, a surveyor, an architect, was very much interested in seeing um, transportation linkages between centers of population and centers of raw materials. And in, in his day, that connection would have been with canals. And so he was really pressing for canals. And here in Philadelphia, uh, Robert Morris, who was the financier of the Revolutionary War, um, he started up a group looking at various canals. Uh, one of them was proposed here for Philadelphia called the uh, Delaware and Schuylkill Canal Company. And uh, he funded it. And then another group said, well, let's take it up the Schuylkill River. So they took it up to Reading and, and points north of there over time. Um, however, um, the Pennsylvania canals didn't work out so well. They didn't have enough funding. Robert Morris ended up in debtor's prison. And so things didn't go so well here in Philadelphia. But in the state of New York, things went really, really well. With the Erie Canal, uh, begun in 1818 and completed in 1825, linking the Hudson River at Albany with the Erie Canal at uh, Buffalo. And up until that point, um, Philadelphia had been the leading port and financial center of the United States. But in a very short period of time, uh, the Port of New York ate Philadelphia's lunch. So it was the Erie Canal that did that? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so um, alarmed Philadelphians who saw their, their business just disappearing uh, went to the state of Pennsylvania and said, can you come up with some alternative? And that's the state said, yes, we will, we will help you out. We'll, we'll build something that's an alternative to this Erie Canal. And that was called the Main Line of Public Works. Um, you hear about the main line running mm -hmm. Philly to Harrisburg. Well, that line uh, started out as a series of railroads and canals, and it was a four-day trip from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh. Uh, you started out in Philadelphia uh, on a railroad line that ran to uh, Columbia, Pennsylvania on the Susquehanna River at like 80 miles, and then you got onto uh, a, ca a canal boat that took you from, Hol from uh, Columbia to Hollidaysburg, and then there was a portage railroad took you over the mountains into uh, Johnstown, and then you're back on a, on, I think you're back on a canal then from from uh, Johnstown to uh, to Pittsburgh. It was a, it was a horrible ride. I mean, yeah, well, four days 
going that way, how long did it take on the Erie Canal? Well, um, it, it took, uh, the Erie Canal was shorter and, and it, it was a one seat ride, if you will. I mean, you, you got on there and, and you went. So they could do it in about two days. They didn't have the mountains. Uh, right, they did, they did, exactly. They did not have the mountains. They did not have to contend with that. However, um, canals always have to deal with weather. Uh, it's freezing or you're having a, a drought. And so that, that, that created problems for them. But uh, when Pennsylvania began its, its uh, arrangement, the state of New York was already laying railroad track along the, the bank of the Erie Canal. So, I mean, they were one step ahead and Philadelphia was not. So um, the, uh, the main line of public works uh, limped along for maybe about 10 years. And then uh, a, a new threat occurred for the Port of Philadelphia, uh, the B&O Railroad out of Baltimore, it's Baltimore, Ohio. Um, they were going up the Potomac River, they were heading uh, in a uh, westerly, northwesterly direction to, until they reached a point right next to the boundary of Pennsylvania. And they said, we're so, we're so close to Pittsburgh, let's, let's extend a line into Pittsburgh. Well, they had to get uh, state legislative approval for they that. They did? Why was they that? Hmm? Why was that that they needed the state legislature? Well, that, it, it, has been, it had been the law that to build uh, a turnpike or a canal or something like that, a transportation amenity, um, one had to get authorization from the state legislature. So um, the b and went to the state legislature and there was a very tumultuous meeting where the Philadelphians opposed this uh, dramatically. And, and the b and lost this by one vote. And, and that one vote rankled them for 100 years and it, it had its repercussions as, as recently as the 1950s. But um, the, the state people said, well, you don't like this main line of public works. Uh, what do you want? And so the uh, Philadelphians said, we're going to create our own railroad, and that's going to be the Pennsylvania Railroad, okay? So Philadelphians uh, got a charter for this. Uh, the, the main line still existed, and the main line was still hauling freight. But again, this, this mixed system of canals and railroads. And uh, over a 10-year period from 1847 to 1857, um, the uh, Pennsylvania Railroad uh, filled in the blanks, if you will, where the canal had been. They now put in a railroad track. And so by 1857, the, the Pennsylvania Railroad from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh was, was completed. Um, and now in Philadelphia, um, there was a uh, uh, main line of public works connection to the Schuylkill River. And th this shows uh, the Belmont inclined plane. When uh, this railroad system first started, um, one had to ascend this plateau uh, of seven degrees, and that was way, way too, too, too steep a grade for locomotives of 1835. So they put in an endless rope or conveyor belt with a stationary steam engine at the top of the hill, and they would take the cars that came down and they would attach them to this endless rope and drag them at the 7% grade right up to the top of Belmont Plateau. Well, this was horrible. I mean, it scared everyone out of their minds. And I, You I, have I, some descriptions in there about how harrowing it was. Yes, uh, yes. A, yeah. a woman writing in 1836 said some of the passengers didn't want to continue the ride once they got up to the top of the plateau. But um, when the Pennsylvania Railroad now, in this 10-year period, 1847 to 1857, when they're looking at their system and what are they going to do, uh, they said, well, uh, we're going to put in a level grade line, and that's going to take us to Market Street. And so um, that roughly at 30th Street Station. So that's really how 30th Street Station became an important point on, on the railroad. Now, uh, an interesting uh, development occurred in the 1840s in Philadelphia. Uh, and actually it began er even earlier in the 1830s. Uh, Philadelphians were a pretty wild and crazy group of people. 
they didn't hesitate to let people know their opinions of things. And uh, one of the things they really didn't like was Catholic immigrants. Okay, so in in the 1840s uh, there were riots in Philadelphia, uh, in which uh, um, Catholic churches were burned, convents, and libraries were were burned, and the uh, uh, local police were too uh, just too few to combat this. Uh, the second riot, which occurred in South Philadelphia and Southwark, required 5,000 state militia to uh, put down the rioting. So. Uh, in those days, Philadelphia was much smaller than it is today. It was just this uh, area of about two square miles from Vine Street down to South Street and between the two rivers. And uh, that was the city, and then the rest of it was Philadelphia County. Well, uh, in, in 1854, uh, the decision was made. We have to merge the, the city government with the county government. Well, this had a big impact on the railroads because with the Pennsylvania Railroad coming to 30th and Market Streets, the stations on this, the passenger stations, the freight stations, were in Center City, Philadelphia. And they, to get to those stations, the city of Philadelphia would not allow uh, locomotives on city streets. Uh, the fear was that the uh, ash and, and so forth flying up out of the fireboxes on a locomotive would set fire to people's homes. So uh, the city then created its own municipal railroad, which was horse-drawn. And so there was a horse-drawn railroad on Broad Street, and there was a horse-drawn railroad on Market Street. And uh, the, uh, uh, the, the railroads would have to turn over their cars to, to this horse-drawn railroad. And in, in the 1850s, this railroad was running 24-7. And it still couldn't keep up with all the business because the United States was growing very rapidly. So um, the slide that you'll see shows a, a uh, what appears to be a hotel with garages in its basement and, and cars being pulled by horses going in and out of this garage. Well, that's how the railroad system worked. So uh, then uh, with this merger of the city government and the county government, um, the City Hall of Philadelphia, which used to be uh, right next to Independence Hall on, on Chestnut Street, uh, proved to be much too small for, uh, for the new responsibilities that, that it now had to face. So um, the decision was made to build a new City Hall. Uh, they put it to the voters. That there, there were five squares in Philadelphia. And they said, Where do, which square do you want to put the, the uh, uh, City Hall on? And uh, the voters said, we want to put it on Center Square. Well, Center Square was the interchange yard for the Market Street and uh, a Broad Street freight system. So uh, now some other alternative had to be found. Uh, fortunately for uh, the city and for the Pennsylvania Railroad, the president at the time was a man named J. Edgar Thompson, who was a real genius at, at this kind of thing. And he came up with two ideas which were called the Connecting Railroad and uh, the Junction Railroad. And the connecting railroad allowed uh, trains to go from the Schuylkill River arcing across uh, North Philadelphia to Frankfurt Junction. And then this junction railroad would take the, the traffic down from the Schuylkill River to South Philadelphia. So that system worked very well and it eliminated the need for the center square yard. So every, everything worked out that way. Which, which leads me to talk about another railroad in Philadelphia, which is. Uh, one of my favorites because so much of it remains, but nobody knows it. Um, going south from Philadelphia to Wilmington to Baltimore, um, a group of Philadelphians in the 1830s came up with an idea of, of building this, this railroad system. However, um, they wanted to avoid this horse-drawn railroad. So instead, they just went outside of what was then the city of Philadelphia. They brought in Washington Avenue 
and they built a, a passenger train and freight station there. And then the line went uh, west and across the Schuylkill River and then turned south and went down to Baltimore, and uh, to Wilmington, and then from Wilmington to Baltimore. Um, it, it was able to cross the Schuylkill River on a bridge. Uh, it was the, the, the first bridge in South Philadelphia across the uh, Schuylkill River. And um, the gentleman who was the president of this company was named Matthew Newkirk. And so it became known as the uh, Newkirk Viaduct. And when this railroad was finally completed on uh, Christmas Day, 1838, um, people were so happy with it that they erected a monument uh, at 49th and Grays. On this monument, uh, they put the names of the engineers and, and the builders who, who had constructed all this. And, and if, if you go down to 49th and Grays today, you'll see it. It's still there. It's still there. It's covered with graffiti and, and trash and junk. It's right in the middle of real high-speed railroad lines. Uh, um, Amtrak goes flying through, Septic goes flying through. And so when I saw that, I was appalled. I was really appalled. And I said, you know, this is no way to treat such a, a wonderful uh, amenity, uh, uh, memento of Philadelphia's great Golden Railroad Age. So um, I say in the book that it should be taken to, uh, uh, clean, cleaned up, taken to 30th Street Station. I've since found out after writing the book that other people have had a similar idea. Uh, what they uh, are proposing to do is take it from its present location at two, they're going to move it maybe 200 yards to Bartram's Garden. And there they're going to clean it up and, and have people available for people to, to see it. Pardon me. You, you mentioned a couple of um the railroad stations that were in Philadelphia yeah. at the time, 30th Street, and and you have a, a picture of 31st Street Station yes. in here. Can you talk about some of the great railroad stations that were in yes, Philadelphia? Yes, I, I would love to. Which one would you desperately have wanted to see? Okay, um, the, the station that uh, this, this line I was just recently talking about, the Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington line, mm. uh, built a passenger station and a freight station uh, at uh, Broad and Washington. The freight station still exists. It has no historic marker on it. You would never know what, what its role had been. It was built in the 1850s. Uh, the role that it played in the Civil War is just, just phenomenal. And, and yet Philadelphians treat this, this, this building like it's, like it's a garage. Pardon me. Um, with, when you go to Baltimore, um, the, the uh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington Railroad Station in Baltimore is magnificently maintained. And, uh, it is used by Baltimore as its Civil War Museum. And, and the, the effect, uh, what had happened in the Civil War was that uh, uh, when the South Carolina militia attacked Fort Sumter in South Carolina, uh, the uh, uh, President uh, Lincoln uh, asked each state to provide 5,000 troops. And Pennsylvanians were very happy to, to oblige. So uh, a, a unit of this Pennsylvania militia was traveling to Baltimore for, heading for Point South. And uh, they were attacked on the streets of Baltimore because Baltimore, just like Philadelphia, said, we don't want to have any locomotives on our streets. So rather than um, ride any other conveyance, the troops got off the train, the, Pen the Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington train at President Street, and they walked down Pratt Street to get aboard the B&O train at uh, Camden, Camden's, Camden Yards. That's mm -hmm. where it was, Camden Station. And as the Philadelphians were walking down the street, they were attacked by a mob of secessionists in Baltimore and a Philadelphian was murdered. And he was Philadelphia's first, <coughs> first uh, casualty of the Civil War. A man named George Leisenring, who was a German immigrant, lived in Fishtown. 
So that, to me, uh, I think Philadelphians should pay a lot of attention to that particular station. Um, the Pennsylvania Railroad also built a beautiful station um, called Centennial Station, um, which, uh, getting back to the 1876 event, um, that station lasted uh, through that period. Uh, and then, um, in 1881, the Pennsylvania Railroad built Broad Street Station, which I actually remember because uh, my father had uh, a studio uh, and I used to go down to his studio in the summer months when I was out of school. What kind of and, studio? Uh, he, he restored works of art. And so uh, I would like go up in the loft and I would look out the window, and this is like 1952, and uh, the station was under demolition. And I, 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 I remember just sitting in awe watching the, the iron ball swing and the building fall down. So that, that is a station that I remember well. Why did they knock it down? Well, um, the, uh, the station was a nightmare from, from an operating perspective because um, the main trains running north-south were operated on the west bank of the school. But now this Broad Street Station was in Center City, right next to City Hall. And so the trains would have to back into the station, back out again, and it would add like anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes onto the schedule of a train running from Washington to New York. Well, that's, that was really the impetus to build um, 30th Street Station. Um, 30th Street Station uh, was conceived in the early 1920s. And it was encouraged by the fact that Philadelphia was having uh, this Ben Franklin Parkway constructed. And initially, uh, uh, the, the uh, city was very happy to see this, uh, this move out to 30th Street, where that old station had been in 1864. However, then the railroad said, well, the, if we're going to make this move, you're going to have to pay for some of the public improvements for this. And so the city of Philadelphia found itself on the hook for uh, like subway improvements and, and other, other improvements there. Then, of course, the, the, the station was completed around, I shouldn't say completed, it was well underway around 1930. And Suburban Station, by the way, was completed in 1930. But, uh, but then the Depression occurred, and uh, the city didn't have the money to, to, to pay its end of the bargain here. And uh, then World War II came along, you couldn't get the steel for the job. So 30th Street Station was actually completed uh, around 1954, 1952. And so uh, then it was okay to knock down the uh, uh, Broad Street Station. Can you talk about the uh, Chinese Wall? Yes, yes, because the Chinese Wall was how the trains got from the uh, uh, east bank. They crossed the river, the Schuylkill River, now they're on the east bank, and, and they continued right into uh, uh, Broad Street Station. Um, it was a real uh, blight on, on the city at, at, at that time. Uh, people who lived uh, in the vicinity of Logan Square didn't want to go south. People who lived in Rittenhouse Square didn't want to go north. Um, I uh, talk in the book about uh, a senator at the time, uh, George Wharton Pepper, who grew up, uh, uh, he lived in his, into his 90s and he wrote his autobiography, Philadelphia Lawyer, fascinating book. And uh, he uh, talked about how pleasant the city was around Rittenhouse Square, but how people didn't want to go north because of this Chinese wall. So the, the parkway really, uh, the, the combination of the parkway and uh, the 30th Street Station really addressed this, this blight. And once the, uh, there was no longer need for those two entities, uh, then they could be demolished and, and now you had uh, Penn Square and all the, all the developments that occurred in the 1950s and 1960s, which were office type developments. You also say in your book that people don't realize that there were once two Broad Street stations yeah. and one of them still exists. Oh, yes. Yes, that's right. Um, the, uh, 
The Reading Railroad uh, in the late 1920s was by that time owned by the B&O Railroad. And the B&O Railroad had service coming up through Philadelphia onto New York. And I've, I've ridden that, I remember uh, uh, being on that train. That service was eventually disconnected, discontinued in uh, 1958. But um, when the uh, Pennsylvania Railroad announced that they were going to build 30th Street Station, the B&O, again, as the owner of the Reading, decided that it would be a, a good idea for them to build a new station, and that was going to be uh, North Broad Street Station, which is up around Broad and Huntington, uh, Broad and Lehigh. And so they uh, uh, built this station in 1930. Their timing couldn't have been worse with the Depression. And then they decided that they, they were not going to use that station. So after having built it, it, it just sort of died on the vine for uh, 30 years. Then uh, the Reading eventually sold it, and, uh, um, and now it's uh, a halfway house for prisoners. Was, it, was that the same as North Philadelphia Station? No, North Philadelphia Station was different. Uh, North Philadelphia Station, which is just a little bit further north on Broad Street, uh, provided a really good connection for uh, fast passenger trains that didn't want to cross over into Broad Street Station. I mean, if, if Pennsylvania Railroad was advertising a train like the American, okay, worthy of the name it bears, uh, or the Broadway Limited, trains like that, they really didn't want to give up 30 minutes doing the uh, back and forth on the Schuylkill River. So they told Philadelphians, uh, uh, here's this real high-speed Philadelphia train to New York or Washington, but you're going to have to take the Broad Street subway or, or a cab or whatever to go up to uh, uh, North Broad Street Station, North Philadelphia Station. Well, you talked about in this, the time before the Civil War how they, the soldiers took the train to one station and then had to walk yes. across town to another. Was that common? I mean, if you're going intercity training, would you, and had you change railroads, you had to find your way across Absolutely. town to the next that's, railroad? That's how it was for many years, uh, not only Philadelphia and Baltimore, but Wilmington as well. Uh, it, was, uh, it was just how things were. And uh, one more train station. We have to talk about the Reading Station in oh, Philadelphia. Reading Terminal? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic station. Uh, very interesting story there because uh, um, the, the Reading uh, had a very uh, wild ride in terms of its, uh, its uh, financial uh, health. Uh, it was either up or it was down. I mean, it didn't seem to have any even keel at all. Um, the Reading Railroad got its start uh, basically hauling coal. And uh, particularly anthracite, uh, the, the, the interesting story with the anthracite business, which basically built the Reading Railroad, was that uh, when, going back even to George Washington's time, Philadelphia was growing very rapidly. And uh, the, the problems that they were running into uh, were that uh, they were running out of fuel for cooking and heating. And Philadelphia was becoming denuded of its trees. They're all being chopped down and burned. And another problem Philadelphia was having was uh, um, the yellow fever uh, epidemics, which people erroneously attributed to bad drinking water. Okay, that, that was not the reason. And so uh, people were just starting to experiment with uh, coal, but they were using uh, Virginia coal, and Virginia coal was a bituminous or a soft coal. And uh, it was very expensive to bring up to Philadelphia because uh, in those days there were no railroads. So a Philadelphian named Josiah White, uh, one, of, one of the great Philadelphians as far as I'm concerned, uh, came up, well he heard that there was anthracite coal up, in, up along the Lehigh River. And uh, uh, nobody could figure out how to ignite it. That was, that was the problem. He went up there and he bought several wagon loads of this uh, anthracite and brought it down. He had a, a nail factory in Fairmount. 
So he has this, uh, uh, he has this hard coal there, and his guys are trying to light it up. It won't light, it won't light, it won't light. And so finally, it's a Friday afternoon, and uh, uh, it's time to go home. And so the workers were really disgusted. They took all their remaining anthracite and threw it in, in the uh, furnace, locked the door, and left. Okay. Well, one of the one of the workers remembered that he'd left his coat in in, in the uh, in the mill. So an hour later, he goes back to get his coat, and when he opens the door, vroom! There is this enormous fire going. So he, he notifies Josiah White, who uh, not wanted to waste any resources. He calls all of his workers back, and and they, they did three heats of iron from just this this one fire. So he knew he was onto something. Time was of the essence. You had to pay attention to time when you're, when you're lighting anthracite. And because he was in the metal business, he now began experimenting with different shapes of grates and sizes of grates. Because anthracite, quite frankly, is a very good fuel compared to other types of coal. It's, it, it burns hotter. It's uh, 16,000 16, BTUs per pound of anthracite, 12,000 12, BTUs per pound of uh, uh, bituminous. And you get some crappy coals out there, like uh, brown coal. Uh, I mean, they get like 4,000 BTUs. So, I mean, this was a really good coal. Uh, it, it didn't do much in the way of sparks and it had very little ash, relatively speaking. So it was good fuel. So he goes up to uh, uh, where he's been buying his, his cartloads of coal, a little town called March Chunk. And March Chunk, uh, he, he buys up mineral rights to uh, 20,000 acres. So now he's bringing in, uh, he's, he's now mining this coal, and he wants to bring it down to the Lehigh River uh, because uh, if he builds a canal along the Lehigh, he can float the, the coal down to the Delaware and then go down uh, the state canal along the Delaware River to Philadelphia. That's his plan. But uh, the problem he runs into is his mine is like up on a hill, Summit, Summit Mountain, okay? And uh, so how's he going to get the coal? Uh, down from Summit Mountain to the river. Well, he's going to have wagons come down. And by gravity, uh, he used, he used uh, for the very first time in the United States, he used a surveyor's transit to shoot the line and grade of a path running down the hill that would be uh, all sloped down in the direction of the heavy traffic. So, I mean, this, this, now that's a very common thing on railroads, but he was the first one to do it. And then he took wooden planks and put wooden planks down on this path, and so he created a railed road. Another first-time first, first experience. This is like right after the War, war of 1812. So um, now he's got the coal coming down the hill, but how do you get the empty wagons back up the hill? Well, um, his solution is um, he's going to bring uh, uh, mules. He's going to put mules in these cars, and they're going to roll down, and then they're going to get off at the bottom of the hill, and then the mules are going to pull the empties back up the hill. Fun ride for the mule. Yeah, well, the, the mules had motion sickness. This was not good. So he, he would put a boy in each car, and the boy would be feeding the, the mules hay to uh, uh, take care of their motion sickness. And so Josiah White loves to say this. He invented the first railroad dining car. <laughs> So uh, I tell you, um, I know we're talking about Philadelphia Railroads, but uh, Mott's Chunk, which is now called Jim Thorpe, mm -hmm. is a really good place to visit. I mean, that is a very interesting town. They've done a wonderful job of maintaining the uh, uh, historic nature of so many different things that were associated with the coal industry. So um, that... What do you see if you go there? So what do you see? What do you see if you well, go there? Well, uh, I, I happen to enjoy cycling, and so there are numerous paths up there to cycle. Um, they have created a model gravity railroad uh, that I described. Um, uh, there's whitewater rafting on the Lehigh River. Uh, the, the town itself, they have the coal barons, uh, uh, mansions up on the hill there. 
Uh, they have a, 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 a tourist railroad that takes you around. And then uh, the Molly Maguires, who were the uh, uh, Irish miners in, in that area and who were constantly quarreling with their uh, English and Welsh uh, bosses. And so uh, they, uh, a lot of them ended up uh, uh, in, in jailed there and then executed there. Uh, and so you, you can go there and visit the jail where the Molly Maguires were. Well, part of your book talks about some of the, the titans of industry, like you mentioned J. Edgar Thompson and J.P. Morgan is in your book. Oh, yeah. And uh, talk about Franklin Gowan. Oh, yes, yes. Franklin Gowan ties in nicely with uh, uh, Jim Thorpe of Moss Chunk. Um, he uh, was trained as an attorney, and uh, he was actually the uh, district attorney for Carbon County at one point. But then uh, he applied for a job at the Reading Railroad, uh, or in those days called the Philadelphia Reading Railroad in Philadelphia, where their offices were. And um, he became their chief counsel. And uh, within a, a, about six years, um, he became president of, of that uh, railroad. And uh, he uh, very much enjoyed being a prosecutor. And even though he was no longer in, in, in that business in, in uh, Carbon County, uh, he volunteered to come up and be special prosecutor. So uh, he, he was very much involved in, in getting c convictions of something like 26 Molly McGuire's. And those convictions were reversed by Governor Milton Schapp. He said, you know, miscarriage of justice. And, and uh, so the, the, all, all those convictions were overturned after these men had been too late. hung, you know, uh, something like uh, 100 years earlier. But Gallen really attempted to take over as much of the railroad business as he possibly could. The charter of the Reading Railroad uh, forbids the uh, railroad from getting into the coal mining business. He ignored that uh, prescription and instead he created the Reading Coal and Iron Company. And so the Reading Railroad is now mining coal. And when a, a mining company other than his own would call up and say, I, I need a couple cars. To, to, to take coal out of my mind. Well, I'm sorry, all of, our, all of our cars are accounted for. So, I mean, he was, he was a real slick guy. And uh, he uh, attempted to take on uh, the competition, which in his case was the Pennsylvania Railroad, by uh, forming alliances with other railroads like the New York Central and uh, uh, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. And he actually was able to put together a route which uh, ran from uh, Philadelphia on up to uh, Raritan Bay. Uh, Jersey City, and so uh, that that was successful. Um, however, as he got more and more into coal mining, uh, the price of coal dropped. The, the, there was an oversupply of coal. Uh, he did everything he could to find new markets for anthracite. He went as far as to sell anthracite in England. England is Britain is basically uh, a lump of coal with some dirt on top. I mean, it, it is a, it is a coal mine. Carrying coals to Newcastle. <laughs> they, there you are. There you are. That's exactly what he tried to do. But um, eventually, things got to be so bad, and and J. P. Morgan uh, became an investor in some of his activities. And it occurred to Morgan that he had to get rid of uh, uh, this man. He just he just couldn't keep him around. And so um, that's what happened. He was he was run out of the business, um, and he committed suicide. Okay. Uh, well, you also talked about in your book about the Pennsylvania Railroad and the Reading Railroad owning steamships. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The uh, Pennsylvania Railroad uh, was um, a, a truly intermodal company uh, to handling customers' logistics. And the problem in Philadelphia was that there were a series of uh, islands in the Delaware River off Walnut Street, Chestnut Street. 
And uh, these islands uh, were so close to the piers that sh ships were limited in terms of their length, in terms of ability to use uh, these piers. And this became a problem for the Pennsylvania Railroad uh, because they were having more and more business and they wanted to have bigger and bigger ships. So the Pennsylvania Railroad then began developing railroad lines in South Philadelphia along South Delaware Avenue, or what is now called Christopher Columbus Boulevard. And um, it looked as though the center city port was going to die on the vine because it, it was just too small. Um, there was a Philadelphia, a, everyone should know this from Cramp Shipyard. Uh, Cramp Shipyard was uh, the great builder of ships uh, in, in Philadelphia for many, many years, a century probably. And uh, uh, Cramp received a commission from the Pennsylvania Railroad to build four iron ships, uh, steam-powered ships, that were 350 feet long. Now, that's not a big ship today, but in 1870, that was, that was a big deal. So the Philadelphians now realized that they were going to have to get rid of these islands. And so they, they uh, put together a plan for this. Uh, they brought in the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad to assist them with this. And so they eventually were able to dig up these islands and dump the materials in South Philadelphia uh, down around the Philadelphia Navy base. If you, if you go down to the Philadelphia Navy base, uh, you'll see that they're like big railroad yards just to, to the north uh, to I-95. I-95 cuts through there as sort of a northern boundary. And then there's these long, wide railroad yards. That's all fill land from, from where these islands were dug up. So um, that was, that was, that was a, an important improvement uh, for Philadelphia. And then the Reading Railroad also got into, uh, uh, as Franklin Gowan was attempting to uh, export uh, coal, he was also attempting to build his own ships. But that didn't work out. That was, uh, uh, you know, that was not his expertise. So he also went to Cramp Shipyard and Cramp built him ships. You mentioned. Uh, earlier on in this discussion about the Baldwin Company, can you talk about the Baldwin Company and w w how important they were in Philly? Yeah, Baldwin, uh, Matthias Baldwin, a very interesting fellow, uh, started out as a jeweler. Uh, he went through an apprenticeship as a jeweler. And uh, after several years of that, uh, he got into the manufacture of uh, uh, implements for manufacturing other things. And so uh, the steam engine, which had come into existence around 1700 uh, in, in Britain. Um, various improvements were made on the steam engine. Uh, he took an interest in this technology and he, uh, he created his own steam engine. But this was not the kind you would put on a, on a train or a ship. It was a stationary engine. But it, it was a power source. Um, Philadelphia had, had a very long history of manufacturing activity before Baldwin because uh, Philadelphia is located where the Piedmont meets the Tidewater. And so you have hills uh, coming out, like along the Wissica Creek is a beautiful example of this, uh, hills coming out of, of the Piedmont flowing into the Tidewater, the Schuylkill River. And uh, this fast running water allows for the creation of water mills. And so uh, here in Philadelphia, we have uh, historic Rittenhouse town. Uh, that was a uh, paper mill from 1690 making use of one of the tributaries of the Wissican Creek. There's a really nice um, uh, mill to visit in New Jersey, uh, Clinton, New Jersey, called the Red Mill. I mean, that's an actual working mill, water mill. So, very interesting thing to see. So um, Baldwin now, with his stationary engine, no longer had to be uh, along a creek. I mean, he, he now had his own power source. Uh, all he had to do was hook up belts to the steam engine, and he could run power up to the uh, higher floors of the building. And he essentially created uh, a factory. And he was doing this down at the corner of uh, around 
3rd and Walnut Streets. And the interesting thing about that particular area of the city is it was the location of the American Philosophical Society, which in those days was the uh, United States Patent Office. Kind of your Independence Hall. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, in fact, in fact, it's the only uh, non-federal-owned uh, building in that complex there. Um, they uh, continue, uh, the American Philosophical Society continues to do what it does uh, right here in Philadelphia, although it is no longer obviously the U.S. Patent Office. But the really nice thing about this, uh, and this portends for the, like the state of Pennsylvania's own industrial development, was that it provided a clearinghouse where people who were interested in what was being made, what was going on, could come and listen to presentations. And then they could come up afterwards and have a question and answer session with, uh, with the presenter. And then they could all get together for lunch and talk about what everyone else was doing. And so it, uh, the American Philosophical Society became the incubator for Philadelphia's Industrial Revolution. And I would say for the United States' own Industrial Revolution. Um, Baldwin quickly outgrew his machine shop at Third Walnut. And now he's looking for a bigger place to, 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 to spread out. And fortunately, in those days, uh, there was a large tract of undeveloped land uh, in Philly up around um, uh, Broad Street and Spring Garden Street. It was uh, an estate that had belonged first to the William Penn family, uh, and later it became known as uh, Bush Hill. Uh, so there was a lot of vacant land up there. And, uh, he went up and he purchased uh, 17 acres of land. Uh, a, a number of his uh, associates who had attended these uh, American Philosophical Society meetings, they uh, also moved up in there. And that whole area, uh, one of my slides shows that, um, was really a powerhouse industrial area and lasted uh, right up until uh, World War I. The, um, uh, the Baldwin, uh, first manufactured uh, what, what, for all intents and purposes, would be a toy train. Uh, he, he received an offer from uh, a man named Franklin Peel, who had the Philadelphia Museum up around Broad and Cow Hill. Mm -hmm. and, and he said, can you make a little train that goes around my shop? And he said, sure, I can do that. And uh, can it carry like two passengers? Oh, yeah, I can make it for two passengers. So uh, Philadelphians loved it. They had never seen a locomotive before. This was the first locomotive in Philadelphia. So. Uh, uh, then, then another railroad called the Philadelphia, Germantown, and Norristown went to him and said, uh, could you build a locomotive for us to, to pull passengers and freight? A real one. A real one, yeah, yeah, <laughs> industrial strength. So uh, he uh, built one for them, but they got into a, <clears throat> they got into a uh, dispute over payment, and Baldwin said, I'm never going to build another locomotive. But wrong, 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 because now the Pennsylvania uh, main line of public works came to him and said, well, we're building this line from Philadelphia to Columbia, Pennsylvania. Would you build us seven locomotives? So Baldwin said, oh, yes, I'll do that, sure. So uh, next thing you know, his business just really took off. And um, he was the powerhouse locomotive builder in the United States. And about 40% of his output was exported. Uh, it, he was a, a big, big hitter. And he really hit his, hit his peak in the decade, uh, the first decade of the 20th century. Uh, that was a period in which uh, American and other, but particularly American uh, railroads were buying not only more and more locomotives, they were buying bigger and bigger and bigger locomotives. And uh, he had this multi-story factory at Broad and Spring Garden. Um, he had 17 acres of ground on which he had built 64 acres of floor space. I mean, it was, it was a big, tall building. 
And uh, with all these new orders just pouring in, he, he, he couldn't continue doing this. So uh, around 1907, um, he made the decision to uh, move to the suburbs. Uh, one of the first of, of many, many, many. And so he uh, went to Delaware County and he bought 600 acres of land along the Delaware River down near Eddystone. And he began building this, this, this one-story factory. Uh, and uh, that uh, factory was, uh, took a long time to construct. I mean, you can imagine anything that big. And so um, he finally was able to move all of his Philadelphia operations to Delaware County. So that was instead of Philadelphia, not in addition right, in, to Right, instead, yes. He abandoned Philadelphia in 1928. Um, now, getting to the J.P. Morgan story on this, uh, J.P. Morgan uh, had assisted the uh, Baldwin Locomotive Company switch from being a, having a partnership form of ownership to a corporate form of ownership. And he had done this around 1909. And so he was then personally familiar with what Baldwin's capabilities and plans were. So when he sees Baldwin building this enormous plant out there in Delaware County, he said, uh, and World War I had started, and, and J.P. Morgan was appointed His Majesty's purchasing agent for the British Crown. So he comes to Baldwin and says, we want you to build, to manufacture cannons and ammunition and rifles for the British Army. Can you do that for us? And he said, sure, I'll, I'll let you have my new factory. So uh, as, as what was completed out there in Delaware County now became the arms plant for the British government. And uh, over the course of uh, World War I, uh, Baldwin sold the British $250 million worth of, worth of uh, weaponry. So it, that, that was quite good. But then, as I was saying, in 1920, 1928, Baldwin completed his move out of the city. Um, the Reading Railroad had lost a customer up there at Bush Hill. So they then cut a deal with the Philadelphia Inquirer. And the Philadelphia Inquirer occupied a portion of what had been the Baldwin footprint. And if you go up there today, I mean, the beautiful Elberson building, where the, uh, which the Inquirer no longer occupies, they're now back, back to their original location on Market Street. Another uh, manufacturer that you mention in your book is the Bud Company. Yeah. Uh, what kind of trains did they make and who was behind that? Yeah, Edward G. Bud was uh, a very interesting fellow. Uh, grew up on a farm in Delaware. And uh, right not far from where he grew up, uh, two Frenchmen had uh, come over uh, like in the 1870s. And they had smuggled out of France with them the plans for uh, how, to, how to stamp out metal products. This was a new technology, metal stamping, uh, and, and it was, the French thought they had a monopoly on it, but these two workers had smuggled out plans. So they created a factory inside of a barn, and inside this barn there was one room with a guard at the door, and, and nobody could go in and out except uh, if, you were, if you were permitted to by these two Frenchmen. Well, one of the people who got a chance to look at this was Edward G. Budd, and, and he was like 16 years old at the time. And he said, ah, this is it. I, uh, this is, I think I know what I'm going to do. And he immediately took off for Philadelphia and um, began working in the metals industry. Um, a man named uh, William Sellers. Uh, Sellers had machine shops all around Bush Hill. And he got a job there, first working as a draftsman. And then at night, uh, when he wasn't working, he would go to the Franklin Institute, which was on 7th Street at the time, and he would learn uh, metallurgy and welding. So by 1912, it, he was so well advanced in his knowledge that he, he left his employer at the time, started his own business, and he began creating, by metal stamping and welding, uh, automobiles. 
uh, Philadelphia had uh, quite a uh, quite a role in the uh, automobile industry. Uh, quite a few different automobiles, uh, alphabetically from Buick on up to Willis, uh, were being uh, their their bodies now were being stamped out and welded here in Philadelphia by Bud Company. What kind of railroad cars did he make? Railroad, yeah, he uh, manufactured uh, passenger cars. Uh, he manufactured uh, um, passenger cars for the Reading Railroad, uh, the Crusader, um, the uh, trains for the Canadian National and the Canadian Pacific, their, their uh, passenger lines to Banff and Lake Louise. They were all Bud Company cars. And uh, in more modern times, Bud Company manufactured passenger cars for Amtrak and SEPTA. But, you know, that, uh, once again, it's something that's no longer around Philadelphia anymore. Can you talk about the the political clout that the Pennsylvania Railroad had at its peak? Oh yeah, it, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, gentleman whose responsibility it became to build uh, 33 Station was the uh, president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, uh, William Atterby. Okay, he was also the head of the Republican Party in Pennsylvania, so I mean he he was a, a powerful hitter, and pretty much. Uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad could, could dictate what they wanted uh, in Harrisburg. They, they had that capability. And uh, in Philadelphia, they, they had a lot of clout as well. That's why uh, it became kind of difficult for the city uh, to pursue its interests in the Ben Franklin Parkway when, in fact, the Pennsylvania Railroad said, no, we would rather not do that. But then they, they were able to, to work things out where the city basically said, we'll, we'll pay for various improvements for 30th Street. You say in your book, you mentioned uh, already a couple of them, but uh, you have a lot of different railroads uh, that were running at the time. The Philadelphia and Columbia, the Philadelphia Germantown and Norristown that you mentioned, the Philadelphia Wilmington and Baltimore, the Philadelphia and Reading, the South Penn Railroad. When did they all start? Did they start consolidating at some point? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, the, uh, for example, um, early on, yeah, there were mergers that were end-to-end -end mergers. Uh, I mentioned the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad. Uh, within within the period of time that it took to build these railroads, uh, the people involved realized that it made more sense to unite than to, to, than to compete. And uh, in, in New Jersey, for example, every time a railroad came along, uh, the people who were already running railroads said, why don't you join us? So then you had something called the United Railroads of New Jersey. And uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad uh, was in an acquisition mode, um, particularly under uh, uh, Jay Thompson. And uh, they acquired the United Railroads of New Jersey. They acquired um, the Pittsburgh, Fort Wayne, and Chicago Railroad, which was huge. Um, that was like a 425-mile-long railroad. And that took them from Pittsburgh to Chicago. So that by uh, uh, Thompson's death, uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad had taken on the, the uh, uh, parameters, if you will, of what the Pennsylvania Railroad looked like in 1968 when it went through this disastrous merger with the New York Central. And then the Reading, we talk about the Reading having acquired numerous other lines. If you were a, a manufacturer or a business and, and you wanted to ship something, could you generally choose which railroad you wanted to ship on or were, were you usually in a place where you had one choice? The, the uh, industries loved to find locations that were served by more than one railroad. And, and that way they could beat each other up. Uh, you know, oh, you, 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 you want to charge me $500 to send it to Philadelphia? Well, over here, he's going to charge me $400. And uh, another favorite trick was uh, the uh, manufacturer would own its own railroad. 
And so uh, its own railroad to go from its factory to a connection with, call it the Pennsylvania Railroad. And uh, so the, uh, the little railroad would say to the Pennsylvania Railroad, I got this order here and I'd like to ship it on your railroad. And the Pennsylvania Railroad would say, well, that's $500. Oh, no, no, no. The shipper will only let me have $200. So uh, this, this kind of competition and, and chicanery, if you will, got to a point where uh, the, the Interstate Commerce Commission, which all railroaders will tell you was the worst thing that ever happened, the railroads asked for it. They wanted to have the Interstate Commerce Commission. And uh, it basically it was a way to uh, prevent uh, these kinds of manipulations. Things really went to hell in 1906 with the Hepburn Act. Uh, the Hepburn Act gave the Interstate Commerce Commission uh, authority over railroad rate making, which meant that railroads could no longer charge whatever it is they felt like charging. And so now uh, the, the, the shippers love this because they formed their own association. It was called the NIT League, National Industrial Transportation League. And uh, they would, every time the railroads would come into the ICC with a request for a rate increase, the NIT League would come in and say, oh, no, you, they shouldn't get an increase. They should be cutting their rates. So, I mean, this, this went back and forth, back and forth, until finally, in 1976, um, everyone realized that uh, deregulation had to happen. And so President, President Carter, believe it or not, was the, the start of this deregulation of the airline industry trucking industry, railroads, and finally the port, uh, the ocean shipping business, we 1984. Only, we only have about a, a minute or so left. And before we started talking about this, you mentioned another book you're working on having to do with the centennial and the sesquicentennial. Yes. What, uh, tell us something about the sesquicentennial. Okay, the sesquicentennial of 1926 uh, was held in Philadelphia, and it was held in, in South Philadelphia. And uh, it caused a lot of controversy because many people did not want it to occur the way it, it turned out. They did not want an international exposition. They wanted to have an old home week around Independence Hall. And uh, the mayor at the time, Franklin uh, Freeland Kendrick, uh, was beholden to contractors for contributions. And they said, you have to build an international exposition and you have to build it in South Philadelphia because that's where we are. So um, uh, the, the Vare family, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, there was a Pennsylvania senator there, there was a, a congressman there, these were all brothers, you know. And so the Vare said, you got to build it in South Philadelphia. Well, the Philadelphians hated that. And uh, um, I get into quite a bit of that in the book about the, 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 the tussle between those who wanted to do things in Independence Hall. And when do you think the book will be coming out? I would hope it will be out uh, by the spring of next year. Okay. Well, we are out of time, unfortunately. I think we could go on and on. Uh, <laughs> but uh, if you want to know more of the story, you'll have to read the book. It is called Philadelphia, A Railroad History, and its author is Edward W. Duffy. Thank you very well, much. Well, thank you. I very much enjoyed being here today. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.